Well, can you remember a time in your life when you've been pushed to the perimeter, cut out of the cool crowd, forlorn amongst the forgotten fringes? I was thinking about that this week, remembering a time in ninth grade when I tried out for the traveling baseball team. I had played a few years of traveling team baseball in middle school. I played a little first base, played a little right field. Spoiler alert, that's not where they put the good players. I didn't have much of an arm. I couldn't hit very well, didn't run very fast. I was pretty good at the creative chatter from the bench. You know, we want a pitcher, not a belly itcher. We want a catcher, not a belly scratcher. We want a batter, not a lunch meat platter. We want a hitter, not a loogie spitter. You know, all that good quality, poetic masterpieces of, the, of that sort. That's kind of my niche. Well, by ninth grade, my rhyming rhythmic repartee was not what they were apparently looking for, and I didn't make the cut for the traveling team. There were actually two traveling teams. There was Hemfield Black and Hemfield Red, and I missed them both. I got assigned to, like, Hemfield Chartreuse or something. Actually, I got assigned to the Intramural League, which was all the kids from, I think, grades four through nine who didn't make the traveling squads. Now, I'll be honest with you. Ironically, that year was probably the most fun I ever had playing baseball. I was smacking extra base hits all over the place. I got to play third base that year, the hot corner. If you're wondering why that's a big deal, I'm left-handed. And there are a few ball players watching today who maybe understand that lefties don't play third base because one has to do the hokey pokey and turn yourself around as a lefty to be able to throw the ball to first base. It's super awkward. It takes too much time. It just doesn't work unless... Unless you are a ninth grader playing in a league with fourth and fifth graders, and you're the only one on the team who can actually throw the ball the whole way from third base to first base. On this team, comprised of little dudes about the size of my left leg, I was, I was a physical specimen. I was a, a regular Mike Schmidt holzer. So in one sense, it was fun being the big stud. But I was also painfully aware that I was playing on that team in that league because I stunk. I wasn't any good. I was there as part of the also-rans, the riffraff, the cast-asides. And that was the end of my baseball career. I had the good sense to know, yeah, I, I think I'm done here. Now, some of you who played with me in the church softball league are thinking, oh, so he has always been that bad. And yes, this has not been a, a product of deterioration. I have maintained a consistent level of sub-mediocrity on the diamond for decades. But I learned in that experience in the intramural hinterlands that it's tough being an outcast, being unwanted, being unvalued. Now, we've been on an important journey over over the weeks of this 40 days of prayer sermon series. We began by contemplating the nature of God and His holiness. We then spent time reflecting on our nature, in contrast, not so holy, requiring genuine repentance as the only appropriate response. Then we consider the power of the Spirit that God desires to give to us, to to move through us, to advance His purposes. And then we heard last week a strong call to be an evangelistic people, the sort of people that God uses to share His good news of Jesus, a calling that applies to us all as the Spirit leads and empowers us. So week five of this series that we're walking alongside thousands of other folks within the Alliance all across the country, week five is, is focused on marginalized people. Marginalized people, what is that? Who's that referring to? Well, it's the outcast, the unwanted, the unvalued, those without a place, without a voice, without a home, without an earthly advocate. 
Ninth grade intramural baseball is admittedly a trivial example of what we're talking about. And I suspect that many of us have real and very personal groups of people who come to mind when we think of marginalized people. Marginalized people are, well, they're, they're ignored by humanity, but they're close to the heart of God. Let's read a passage of Scripture to help us link together the cause of the marginalized with the life of prayer. It's known as the parable of the persistent widow. Frankly, a parable that has always perplexed me. Feel free to turn in your Bible or smartphone to Luke 18. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. Again, this is Luke 18. We'll begin in verse 1. Here's what we read. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So what is the main point of of this passage? I've always been perplexed by my initial interpretation of this parable of the persistent widow. I've always thought to myself, shouldn't this be called the parable of the annoying widow or the obnoxious widow? I mean, what is really happening here? She's coming to this judge again and again and again and basically wearing him down, bothering him so much so that she can get her way. So is the point that we can annoy and pester God so much that he will throw his heavenly hands in the air and begrudgingly do what we want him to do so, so, so we will leave him alone? <laughs> Wait, what? That, that can't be it. That's never felt quite right to me, but, but that's always been how I've understood this passage at first pass. Can we apply enough pressure to God through our prayers to make Him do something He doesn't actually want to do? I don't like that view of God or that view of prayer because it just doesn't seem consistent with what I think the Scriptures tell us about the heart of God and the purpose of prayer. So what do we do with this parable of the obnoxious widow? Well, I think we need to understand what Jesus is doing here in telling this parable. He is not saying that the judge represents God. This judge is described as being unjust. That's not a description of God. Instead, Jesus is drawing a contrast between the unjust judge and God. The point is not, hey, look how to manipulate an unjust judge, just like you can manipulate God. As I read in multiple commentaries this week, the point is that an unjust judge requires manipulation to get justice. But God, in contrast, a God of justice, a God of mercy and love and compassion, God desires to respond to our prayers, to our pleas, for justice and for mercy. This is consistent with what we read elsewhere in Scripture. For instance, Matthew 7 says this, starting in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? 
If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? It's the same general principle that our loving Father in heaven desires to give us the good things we ask for, to bless us with good things, with with things we deeply desire from His heart of compassion and grace. No manipulation or annoyance required. Now let's be crystal clear. Everything we ask for, we are not given. And every door upon which we knock, it does not open. And this can seem like a contradiction to what we're seemingly promised in Luke 18 and Matthew 7. But any of us who are teachers or coaches or parents or who have ever been children of parents, we understand that giving someone everything they think they want is not an act of love. In our household, we have seen a recurring event over the years when the little people who live with us eat too much starch. Many birthdays ago, I took Julia to Texas Roadhouse to celebrate her birthday, a little daddy-daughter date. And she loved the rolls with the sweet butter, just loved them, ate tons of them, made herself so full on rolls and sweet butter that she couldn't eat her dinner when it, when it came. And then when we got home, well, she decided to show Kate how many rolls she had eaten, like literally show each of the rolls. I think you understand what I'm talking about. That was our first lesson from Texas Regurgitation House. But, but we are slow learners. With Eliza, brown buttered noodles, same story, different verse. Overholzer children can't handle their starches, it appears. They love them. They ask for more and more and more very persistently. And now we say no consistently. You've had enough. And that's an act of love for them. Sometimes God doesn't give us what we want as an act of love because He knows what we need better than we do. And that's just one reason why God might not give us what we ask for. Truthfully, entire books have been written to mine the depths of why God doesn't seemingly answer some legitimate, reasonable prayers, at least not how we would like them to be answered. Sometimes sin has consequences that God decides must not be skirted. Sometimes God has a bigger plan in mind. Sometimes Awful things just happen because we live in a broken and falling, fallen world and God is not a micromanager superimposing His authority over every little circumstance and trial. Sometimes we just have to trust that God is good and powerful and loving and we simply don't know enough to be able to connect all of the dots. Nonetheless, let's remember that Luke 18 is an encouragement to persist in prayer, to keep at it. Well, why? Why the call to persistence? It's not not because we have to annoy God into blessing us. It's not because God is forgetful as if we have to remind Him to bless us. Let me offer a possibility for why we're encouraged to persist in prayer. Maybe it has nothing to do with how our persistence affects God. Maybe it has everything to do with how our persistence affects us. Now remember that the focal point of the prayer of this persistent widow was for justice. She was beseeching this judge to grant her justice. To return to our theme for this message, another way that we could define marginalized people is that they are people who suffer at the hands of injustice. And our God is a just God, a God whose heart is for the marginalized. Persistence in prayer does not remind God of something He's forgotten nor does it clarify something about which God is confused. But what it can do is provide the context for God to do an important work 
in us to soften our hearts for the marginalized, to be, to be better advocates for justice on behalf of those who are beleaguered and oppressed and forgotten and ignored. In fact, I want to get specific for a few minutes about the scope of who we ought to include within our prayers on behalf of marginalized people. See, here's the rub. I suspect that every single one of us can think of folks we would naturally include within our category of marginalized people. That's not a uniquely Christian sentiment, frankly. Anyone with the slightest bit of empathy and compassion for others can surely identify those who are oppressed and forgotten and suffering. And as Christians, followers of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, I hope that our hearts have some compassion to consider the plight of those who are in the fringes. Whether marginalized by society as a whole or by the church more specifically, to be marginalized is to be denied the worth, the value, the love, and care that God intends for all of His beloved. And we reflect God's love when we see and value those otherwise forgotten. I bet that all of us can embrace that idea in its most broad and generic expression. But none of us, none of us see and value all those who God sees and values. I think as broken and sinful people, we have blinders that limit our ability to care as Jesus cares. We can easily say, yes, pray for the marginalized people. God bless them. When we're either not thinking about specific people at all, or we're only thinking about people that we naturally love. So let's get specific for just a few minutes to, to really to press in and to make sure we don't miss an opportunity to be appropriately challenged by this call to love the marginalized. Unwanted children and unborn babies are most certainly a marginalized people worthy of our prayers. Now, lest we think that the church has always and consistently advocated for the unborn, the history of the evangelical response to abortion in the United States is complicated and it's erratic. It's a complicated issue with many factors at play, many of which warrant our compassion and our sorrow. This church and, and this denomination have consistently advocated for life because we believe that unborn children are people created by God in the image of God with a story that He desires to tell through their lives. Abortion is a tragic end of that story. I believe that abortion breaks the heart of God and that it should break the heart of God's people. If marginalized people are forgotten, unvalued, unwanted, with no voice and no influence, the unborn are surely among that group. So I submit to you that we should pray for the unborn, that justice on their behalf would prevail. Who else is marginalized? Well, those, those who choose abortion always is a way out of unwanted circumstances and often as a way out of, of other forms of oppression, maybe economic or relational. I think it's likely that there are those among us listening and watching today who have had an abortion or who have paid for an abortion. The message that those folks have consistently, unfortunately and tragically heard from the evangelical church is that they are some sort of monster and basically unwanted here. And so the vast majority of Christians who have chosen abortion remain unknown and hidden, either holding the church at, at a distance or simply keeping their pain unknown, a dark secret not to be shared for fear of rejection. They too are marginalized people. We should pray. 
If the unborn are marginalized, we can go to the other end of the life cycle and, and acknowledge that the elderly are certainly a people group so easily discarded to the forgotten corners of our society. One of the many blessings of this church family is that we have many senior saints among us. It is my understanding that within a month's time, we will have three ladies in our church turning 90, Bev Long, Jane Crandall, and Evelyn Rothgeb. All of them turning 90 within three weeks of each other. I wonder if we might be the only church in America with three new nonagenarians this month. And this knowledge makes me feel like we should stop talking about the pandemic as unprecedented. We have folks who just barely missed the 1918 influenza pandemic. Now, as much as we can celebrate and should celebrate the gift of so many beloved folks in our church family with a few decades of experience under their belts, there's no question that our society is quick to cast aside the elderly, especially when we assess that their needs outweigh their contributions. What a sad calculus we so easily practice. Although there are many of our elderly folks watching today and living very well independently or in retirement communities, we also have to acknowledge that nursing homes are populated with many forgotten, abandoned people. The elderly, to our shame, can be easily marginalized. We should pray. And how about orphans? There are thousands of children in the foster care system, many of them floating from house to house, just waiting to be permanently wanted by someone. The scriptures are clear that we have a responsibility as the church to care for widows and orphans. These are people who have long been forgotten throughout all of human history. We should pray. Have we exhausted the list of marginalized people? Nah, you know, we've only scratched the surface. Racial injustice has been part of our national story for centuries, from slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow to the Civil Rights era, all the way to, to present-day abuses and protests, national and local. The issue of, of racial injustice isn't going away, and it's not going away because for our entire history as a nation, black people have been marginalized, not to mention native peoples and, and various other racial and ethnic groups. And even as the nature of that marginalization has shifted and changed, it remains very real, a deep offense to the heart of God. I've spoken about this issue several times before. I expect that we'll be preaching about it more in, in the coming weeks and months. But as I continue to read and listen and learn, it's, it's clear that, that my black and brown brothers and sisters remain outside the margins in so many ways in our society and, and often in the church. Read the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 through the lens of racial division and see how Jesus breaks down the barriers we so easily build. We should pray. And we can't talk about racial, racial issues without acknowledging the connection to issues of poverty. Those issues have been linked all along. I just finished a fascinating and heartbreaking book about the assassination of Dr. King. And I was reminded that his final work, his final projects were all centered around advocacy for poor people, which included black folks, but, but people of all skin colors and ethnicities. When Jesus calls us to care for the least of these, surely the poor are among that group. Read the story of the rich young ruler later in Luke 18 to get a sense of how God desires us to view our stuff in relation to the, to the needy and our natural disinclination from redistributing our wealth. We should pray. How about prisoners? 
Talk about marginalized people tucked away in facilities so we don't have to deal with them anymore. Or those addicted to drugs with this opioid crisis exploding all around us, its own form of imprisonment. Uh, Again, people we so easily push aside or ignore out of our discomfort. We should pray. And those with mental and physical disabilities, those with, with mental health issues, those that are dealing with infertility, you know, the big and excruciating question. When are you going to start a family? We should pray. And the divorced, single people, the LGBTQ community, the Jewish community, we, we know full well that anti-Semitism is, is still alive and well. How about women? We can't get around the fact that half of humanity is marginalized from day one, sometimes even in utero. We should pray. This is quite a list, and it can be overwhelming. And and this listing was far from comprehensive. I'm I'm sure that many of you have other groups of people who have come to your mind over these last few minutes even. I suspect that everyone watching this message has a soft spot in their heart for some of the folks that I have mentioned. That's a good thing. That's a God thing. But I also suspect that I mentioned at least one group that made you go, well, I don't know about that. Them? I don't know if those folks should be included. And I wonder, I just wonder if that's not exactly the spot where God wants to press in and soften our hearts today. Now, there are a host of reasons why you may be internally chewing on one of the groups I mentioned. Let's make sure You don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every group of marginalized people is somehow perfect or faultless or has no issues that need to be addressed. In fact, let me state explicitly that every group of marginalized people and every group of non-marginalized people and every group of people has sin that needs to be addressed. All of them. All of us. Read the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, to get a beautiful picture of how Jesus views each and every one of us. Zacchaeus was, well, yes, he was a wee little man, but also he was a broken, imperfect sinner who Jesus welcomed and embraced with open arms anyway. And when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, he was changed. That's my story. That's the story of all who believe. Jesus has never said to any human, stay as you are. Never. But he has said consistently to every human, come as you are. Always. One of the tragedies of the church's historic response to various groups of people is that a clear message has been sent, even if not explicitly stated, get your act together, get yourself fixed up, and then you are welcome here then you are worthy of our embrace. Then you can be included and known and loved. What was one of the most common accusations against Jesus by the religious leaders of his day? If you've read the Gospels, you know it. He was accused of spending time with the wrong people, with sinners, with tax collectors and adulterers and drunkards, with marginalized people. He embraced them and loved them and cared for them. And the religious folks mocked and rejected him for it. The way of Jesus is too rarely the way of his church. It's too rarely the way of me. Now look, I get get most excited to preach sermons about the things that God has done and is doing in me. 
I'm preaching this message to myself today, trusting that it's a message that God wants to speak to some of you as well. Because I don't naturally have a strong empathetic impulse. I've admitted before, I used to think the title of my first book would be Suck It Up and Deal With It. To my shame, that has historically always been my natural impulse when people share their hurts. Stop being so soft. Stop playing the victim card. Stop making such a, a big deal out of nothing. That's the privilege I have as a white, male, married, middle class, healthy, employed, father of three. I had to dig back to my ninth grade intramural baseball experience to find a time when I felt marginalized. But God is continually working on me to help me see and to love all people as He sees and loves them. Maybe He has that journey for you as well. Now, how does this all fit together? This call to prayer, this acknowledgement of the marginalization of people by our world and tragically by the church, maybe even by us in some way. When we pray, we give God the opportunity to align our hearts with His. We invite Him to soften our hearts, to reflect the things He values most, His people, all people. As we consider those we might not be inclined to embrace and welcome from among the, the many groups that I mentioned, is it possible that we resist the inclusive, welcoming embrace of God for all people because we're aligned with a, a certain ideological grid or entrenched in a certain political perspective or surrounded by an echo chamber of limited scope or simply overly focused on our own problems and issues that, that we haven't created the room for God to help us to see His heart breaking for those who are rejected by His own people. It seems to me that prayer, persistent prayer, expectant prayer, is one of the best ways that we might invite God to do that softening, broadening work in each of our hearts. Would we have the courage to pray for marginalized people who regularly feel the sting and the loss and the pain of rejection and oppression and abandonment and injustice? Do we have that courage? Will we pray those sorts of prayers? I hope we do. But that's not the end. Because when we come before the Lord and pray on behalf of those who live in the margins, we often become the answers to those very prayers. In fact, I think that explains why so many cries to the Lord may seemingly go unanswered. Because God has developed a solution, but the solution is very often His people. And sometimes His people, we the church, fail to show up for our assignment. The assignment of bringing hope and encouragement and love into the lives of marginalized people all around us. Now, I want to be clear that I don't think we all have the responsibility to be actively engaged in trying to serve and love every possible group of people suffering injustice. We are finite. We have limits. We only have so much time and energy, so much of ourselves to give. So I am not the practical solution to every problem, to all those who are hurting and isolated and rejected. I am the solution to some. And, and so are you. And so together, the church, the body of Christ, has an opportunity to truly and broadly and compassionately, in collaboration, as a whole, be the hands and feet and heart of Jesus to a hurting world. My job is to simply do what God has called me to do, to serve where God has called me to serve, to embrace those in very practical ways whom God has called me to embrace. Your job is to do what God has called you to do, to serve where God has called you to serve, to embrace in very practical ways those whom God has called you to embrace. 
Uh, Pastor Aaron will be talking more about this in the coming weeks, and, and you've maybe even heard a, a few little tastes of some previews about, about some of this, but we're, we're creating a few simple pathways for some of you, hopefully many of you, to respond as the Lord leads to serve various marginalized people throughout our community. The Wood for Good program is a great opportunity for the, the physically fit among us to use some of your impressive muscles and fancy power tools and ginormous pickup trucks to cut and split and load and deliver firewood to some marginalized folks who have need of wood to heat their homes this winter. We'll be hosting some overnight guests from the local homeless community when we partner with the amazing ministry of Out of the Cold in late March and early April. That will be a great opportunity for those of us with hospitality or culinary gifts to serve other marginalized folks. We continue to support the amazing work of the, the Center County Orphan Care Alliance as they advocate on behalf of orphans and the, and the fostering and adopting families who care for them. We continue to support the amazing work of the Pregnancy Resource Clinic as they advocate on behalf of those dealing with unexpected pregnancy. We continue to support the amazing work of the Penns Valley Youth Center as they walk, walk alongside young people dealing with a host of different challenges. You can get involved with any of these options or any number of other organizations to help in a host of different ways, to minister to those in the margins. Our Deacons Fund exists to support individuals and families who have financial need within our church family, but, but beyond as well. Our Samaria Fund exists to support organizations who are doing work on behalf of many different marginalized people who are outside the direct reach of the ministry of this church, but whose important work we want to support. The Great Commission Fund exists to support the global work of over 700 international workers sent out by our denomination to proclaim the good news of Jesus and to demonstrate the love and compassion of Jesus to people groups all around the world. All of us can serve and love and give and pray to be a part of that work in some way. Now let me end this message by telling a story that will be familiar to many of you but worth repeating even if you know it. The Christian and Missionary Alliance was founded by A.B. Simpson owner of the most aggressive facial hair this side of Seth Roush. After moving south of the border from his roots in Canada, Simpson made a name for himself by pastoring a large church in Kentucky before being called to be the pastor of one of the most prestigious churches in New York City. He was earning $5,000 a year in the Big Apple in the late 1800s, which was a plum sum in that day, and was acclaimed throughout the city for his oratory for leading and preaching to such an impressive congregation. He had climbed to the highest rung of pastoral success and renown. But he went and did a foolish thing. He went down to the docks and shared the gospel with the poor immigrants who worked there. And when they responded to what he was saying, he had the audacity to invite them to church. Now you can guess where this is going. The fancy people at his fancy church did not appreciate these simple common folks cheapening their worship experience and dirtying their pristine church building. They didn't mind Simpson talking to them about Jesus so long as they stayed in the margins, remained in the docks, didn't disturb their prestige. And so, A.B. Simpson told the dock workers to go home and stay away and to try and find a, a dingy church down there who could minister them in, to them instead, right? Of course not. Of course not. A.B. Simpson, he resigned his position from this most prestigious city church so that he would be free and unhindered to preach and minister to the immigrants and neglected masses and poor people, the marginalized people who needed Jesus. And what remains of A.B. Simpson's work 
Well, only a global missions movement consisting of nearly a half million people in almost 2,000 churches in the United States and over 6 million people in over 22,000 churches in 88 countries all around the world. And what became of that prestigious church in New York City? I did a little Googling this week and was able to find out that the church slowly dwindled over the course of several decades, closed and fell into disrepair in the middle of the 20th century, and was eventually converted into several apartments. We rightly celebrate the work of A.B. Simpson because we wouldn't be who we are without it. But we do well to remember often that the heart of Simpson's ministry was to intentionally, graciously, and even recklessly reach into the unfamiliar and the uncomfortable, to bring Jesus to the most marginalized of people and to welcome those people into the community of faith. The point here isn't a finger-wagging, arm-twisting, guilt-inducing scolding about what we're doing wrong or how we need to be different. Instead, let's simply be reminded of the invitation we have from God to be part of that kind of gospel work. Let's allow God to stretch us, to call us forward, to pray for a group of marginalized people for whom we have never prayed before and maybe who we don't really want to pray for. I believe that He's calling us to be persistent in prayer for every category and type and grouping of marginalized people that we encounter. And I believe that he's inviting us to specifically and actively engage in intentional ministry to be the actual answer to our prayers and the prayers of others for someone, for anyone who needs us. Will we pray? Will we listen? Will we respond? Will we love? Just like Jesus did. Just like he invites us to do likewise. Pray with me. Lord, we come today thankful, thankful for examples of great heroes of the faith like A.B. Simpson, who, who reflected so well the heart of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, to go out and, and do the uncomfortable and sometimes hard work of bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to whoever was in his path. We thank you for that example. We thank you for the life of Christ who's called us forward to live in that way, in that spirit, with that soft heart, with that open arms, that our perspective, that our posture would be to welcome anybody who would come to encounter you. Would we increasingly be that sort of people? Would our hearts be reflective of that longing of yours? We look forward to being an increasing measure a part of that good work. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name.